0: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens in 1961, the Green Bay Packers showed up for training camp. They'd just been defeated in the NFL championship game by the Philadelphia Eagles. And they showed up at camp excited about a new year to learn better plays, to be more effective, to get smarter, to get better, to improve as a team. They wanted to innovate so they wouldn't lose again. And their coach, Vince Lombardi, had something else in mind altogether. Some of you know the story. Coach Lombardi stood among his players, pigskin in hand, and said, gentlemen, this is a football. In the desire to be effective, to succeed, the coach knew that his team couldn't take anything for granted. They could assume nothing, not even one of the most basic ideas of the game, which is which one is the ball that we're supposed to use. They needed to go back to the basics. The coach knew they didn't need to to innovate, They, they needed to shore up their fundamentals. And here we are on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And we live in a culture that is full of ideas and movements and philosophies and theories. And while there may be tiny bits of truth here and there in them, they come with very large and overwhelming quantities of anti-Christian, anti-biblical teaching. And these ideas, these movements, these philosophies, these theories, they clamor for our attention. They say, well, this is the way to be relevant. This will improve the human condition. This will help the church. This explains why people are the way that they are. And some who are in the church are listening to this and they are buying in. And maybe some of you are. I don't know. That as we're huddled up, as it were, thinking about how it is that we're going to succeed in this culture that's around us, some are saying we need to innovate. We need to catch up with the times. The game of religion is changing in the U.S. and we need to come along with it. We need to evolve, as it were. Well, in the midst of that situation, Coach Peter walks in and he says, Church, This is the gospel. Now, certainly in that day, at that time, he wasn't preaching to a church. He was preaching to people who did not yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, Peter wouldn't be the only one that would say that to us this morning. If you read the whole of the New Testament, you'll find that this Constant need to cling to the gospel is something you'll find in Paul. It's something you'll find in John. It's something you'll find in all of the apostles because you know what? They lived in a world full of ideas, full of movements, full of philosophies, full of theories, but their constant message is that the Christian mind cannot be captured by that which is not Christian. So that Paul writes in another place, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So there's both a negative and a positive here. Negatively, we are not to be taken captive by the philosophies of the world, but positively, we are to be captive to Christ. Brothers, sisters, this is the gospel. Now to set Peter's words in context, the Holy Spirit has come. This is Pentecost, that time when God sends His Spirit to empower His church. And when the Spirit came, speaking in tongues came with it. Not a kind of babbling nonsense, but people able to speak in languages they didn't formerly know. But not just speak, they were speaking a particular message. Verse 11 says they were talking about the mighty works of God. And in response to this phenomenon, some of the people in the crowd are confused and others in the crowd are accusing these folks of being drunk. And so Peter clarifies, we won't read verses 14 to 21, but there he explains this isn't drunkenness, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Don't you remember, God said He would send His Spirit, and now He has. And while Peter's got the crowd's attention, he doesn't stop with a mere explanation of speaking in tongues, of the coming of the Spirit. He goes on to what that is meant to draw everyone's attention to, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God does not draw attention to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God draws attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways you know that the Spirit of God is working in your life is when you are enamored by and captured with and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that the Spirit loves to do. He loves to be someone who's never in the spotlight. He's behind the spotlight, shining it on the sun who is the light." And so Peter sets the context and he goes on. And as he preaches what I just read to you, there's this two-word phrase that comes up three times in verse 23, in verse 32, and in verse 36. And the phrase is, this Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is who He had said at the beginning of this section in verse 22. And he keeps saying, he keeps going back to him, this Jesus, this Jesus. Peter's message is about this Jesus. This Jesus is who they need. This gospel is what they need. This gospel is what we need. What we need to not relinquish or forget or assume or take for granted. And So I just want to walk through what Peter says with you. The first thing he says is, you saw this Jesus. You saw this Jesus. That's what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The Jesus that Peter's talking about isn't some legendary figure. He's not conjuring him up, as it were. He's not a myth. He's not a fairy tale. This is This is someone in their very recent history. Only eight weeks ago, Jesus would have ridden into town on a donkey and everybody was celebrating. And the same crowd that's there now listening to Peter for this festival would have been there then. That's why he says this. But even prior to that, Jesus traveled and he taught. And Peter says he did many mighty works and wonders and signs. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He calmed the wind and the waves with a word, He cast out demons, He restored withered hands, He restored withered legs, He raised the dead to life. But Peter's third word there is signs, and you know what that word means? That means these aren't just miracles. These are miracles with a message. These are miracles that are meant to communicate something. Miracles are never an end in themselves. When, someone, when God works even today and He works in miraculous ways, it's not just for the sake of the miracle, you understand? And in Jesus' life, as He did these miracles, the, the message of the miracle was pay attention to the one doing the miracle. That was the message of the miracles. All signs point to Jesus, essentially. That's what all those things are about. Because this one, this is no mere man. Only God can do these kinds of things. Only God can reverse the course of nature. Only God has authority over demons and disease and death. This one doing the miracles is not merely human. He is divine and God sets this is what this attesting means in verse 22 it means God placed him right there and said this is him this is the one you need to pay attention to you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, Jesus is there with Peter and James and John and the voice comes from heaven in Mark chapter 9 I believe and says this is my beloved son listen to him Listen to Him. And God attested that this Jesus is the one that they ought to pay attention to. He set Jesus down right in the world, right in front of these people, so that they can't deny seeing Him. They can't deny hearing Him. They can't deny knowing that He was more than just a carpenter's son. And Peter's words even indicates that. Look at the very end of verse 22. That Jesus did these works in your midst... As you yourselves know. He's just saying, come on, you know this. You saw it. Let's not walk around pretending it didn't happen. He did miracles. He had mighty works. He had great power. Don't pretend like you didn't see it. You know, you know. It's like a parent telling a child, isn't it? Oh, you know better. Right? They've already been told 127 times how they're supposed to do that. And then they don't do it again. And so the parent looks at the child and says, Well, you know better. That's what Peter is saying to the crowd. You know better. You saw him. Now, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him with our eyes. But we've actually heard from those who have. That's what we have in the New Testament. We have the report of those who were there. They're eyewitnesses. So that those, if you grew up in the church and somehow in recent years you've walked away and you find yourself here on Easter because you have some kind of internal compulsion to be in a church on Easter, I'm thankful for that. But just know you've seen Him. You yourself, you know better. Right? Just you know who this is. You heard it so many times in Sunday school, didn't you? You heard it through the preaching of the Bible. You heard it through the prayers of your parents. Those who still hear the gospel and ignore it or argue against it, you yourselves know you've heard. Those who even hear this message now, who hear my voice, if you don't know to this point, you will know before this is over. You saw this Jesus. But then he goes on very quickly to say, you killed this Jesus. You killed this Jesus. He goes on. The crowd didn't just know about the ministry of Jesus. Peter says that they're culpable for the death of Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus, now we'll, come, we'll talk about what's in between the commas, but if you just follow the line of the, the actual subject verb, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then again in verse um, 36, the very last words, this Jesus whom you crucified. The conspiracy to kill Jesus, Judas' betrayal of Jesus, the illegal and prejudicial trial of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, the scourging of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is on their hands. That's what Peter is saying. Oh, yes, 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 we know. It was the Romans who actually did many of those things, but they did it at the pleasure of the crowds. The crowds who were chanting and screaming and demanding the death of Jesus. And so they are guilty. They're guilty under the law. If you you know the, the Ten Commandments, apart from you shall not murder, what about this one? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Isn't that what happened at the trial? Didn't they bear false witness? And then didn't they find more people to say, hey, will you come along and bear false witness with us? Because we need to have as many witnesses as possible so we can condemn this guy. They're guilty. Now, Jesus knew this would happen. He told the disciples it would happen. In Mark chapter 10, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And he actually told them more than once, he told them three times. This is what's going to happen. Three times it's recorded, but in some of those cases it just says he was telling them as if this was the constant part of his communication to his disciples. This is what's going to happen. And if you remember, the man who's preaching this message didn't actually believe it at first. You remember that? Jesus brings it up and Peter pulls him aside and says, Now, Jesus, you can't be saying things like this about you dying and everything. That's crazy. I will not let it happen. But then he saw it unfold. And now with courage and zeal and maybe righteous anger, he looks in them in the eye and says, This Jesus, you crucified and killed. And the fact that Jesus knew points to the fact that behind the crowd's plan to kill Jesus was God's plan, and actually Peter refers to that in verse 23, doesn't he? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, friends, there's no point in human history where God looks at the world and says, what am I going to do now? God never finds Himself brainstorming about His next move. Now, that is very encouraging in our lives, isn't it? Because I don't know what your last week has been like. I don't know what your last month has been like. I don't know what your last year has been like. I don't know what this season of life has been like. But I do know this. God at no point whatsoever said, what is going on down there? I've lost all control. He's never said it. He'll never say it. Even here, when malice and hate conspire to kill the Son of God. You see, the crucifixion didn't send God looking for plan B. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was plan A. It was His definite plan. It was according to His foreknowledge. Now, that doesn't just mean that God knew ahead of time, though He did. God knew ahead of time because He planned ahead of time. As the book of Revelation says, Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light, He said, let there be the Savior of the world and let there be a people who will believe in Him and follow Him. And as Job makes clear at the end of his book, nothing will thwart the purposes of God. And so Peter's words here really speak to two important realities that come together in the death of Jesus. One is the sovereignty of God over every single thing, including the, free act, the, the actions of His creatures. And then the second thing is the responsibility of man. Many people wrestle with those things. Maybe you've wrestled with those things. The next time you do, just go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and read it. Now, understand this. You may not ever just be able to put every single piece together like you'd like it to but here's something you can do here's something you must do if you're a Christian you must believe that both are absolutely true God is sovereign and man is responsible and then secondly you must believe that God does know how it all fits together and you can trust him you can trust him But Peter doesn't mention this to go into a theological discussion about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. He says this to say, you know, even though God's purpose and definite plan and His foreknowledge determined that Jesus would come and be delivered up and died, you're not off the hook. That's what he's saying. You can't use sovereignty as an excuse to get out of our responsibility. You're not off the hook. You're guilty. Now, friends, before we shake our heads and wag our fingers at this crowd and at the crowd that was there when Jesus came into Jerusalem, we need to know that we are just as guilty. We have broken God's law in a myriad of ways, in lying, in lust, having hate in our hearts, sin in our minds, in our mouths, in our lives. I mean, we may wonder how the crowd that cheered and waved palm branches as jesus came in we may wonder how they changed their minds so quick and demanded his death in a few days but let's not pretend we would have done differently had we been there let's not get up on our moral high horse and say oh i would never after all the bible is clear that apart from the spirit of god we are all enemies of jesus christ So there's a very real sense that today when you get home and you look in the mirror you can say and I can say to that image you killed this Jesus. Your sin killed him you saw this Jesus you killed this Jesus but third God raised this Jesus the the crucifixion was not the end amen God raised him from the dead on the third day. Look at verse 24. As soon as he says, This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, very next breath, God raised him up. Same thing happens uh, down in uh, verse... uh, Oh, sorry, in the next sermon that Peter preaches, if you just glance over to chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says in that sermon, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead." So look at verse 24 here back in chapter 2. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, death has incredible power. Do not be fooled. Death has the ability to crush parents. Death has the ability to end lives of promise. Death has the ability to leave a husband or wife alone for the rest of their days. Death has the ability to orphan children. And no matter what medical advances may come, The stampede of death will catch up. The power of death in that sense will not be denied. But there's something death couldn't do. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Death is hanging on to so many people in our lives right now, isn't it? We can go to the cemeteries and we can see. But death couldn't hang on to Jesus. God raised him from the dead. It's not just that it didn't hang on to Jesus. It couldn't hang on to Jesus. And that's the power that actually is at work in us. And Peter's saying this resurrection shouldn't actually be a surprise. Go on to verse 25 to 28. He he quotes David from Psalm 16. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, if you only read Psalm 16, you might think that that's just about David. But Peter is saying this is not actually about David. When David wrote... He wrote as a prophet who was writing a psalm. And it was about Jesus. Just keep going. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did the Christ's flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." David says this is about Jesus. That's interesting that he quotes David, isn't he? David was a great man. David holds a great place in Jewish history, in the history of Israel. David defeated the Philistines by defeating Goliath, you'll remember. When he was king, he led the the nation to many other victories. David's the one who brings the ark of God, that symbol of God's presence, back into the city of God, into Jerusalem. David is the one who receives the promise of an eternal kingdom. But while we may read David's words and learn from David's life, David can't actually help us. He's in the tomb, just like everyone else. Ah, everyone except Jesus. The resurrection separates Jesus from every other king in history. The resurrection separates Jesus from every other religious teacher. The resurrection of Jesus separates him from every other philosopher, every other icon of human history, every other you just fill in the blank. There's a song that I like by an artist named Shai Lin, and it's called Jesus is Alive. And in this song, he mentions memorable historical figures and reminds anyone who would hear that song, they're dead. So I'm just going to read to you part of the lyrics. I'm not going to try to perform it. I'm just going to read it to you. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead, however, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Hale Selassie are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead, Constantine is dead, Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead, Alexander the Great is dead, however, Jesus is alive." Napoleon is dead, Lao Tzu is dead, Che Guevara and Henry VIII are dead, Saddam Hussein is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead, Cyrus is dead, Darius and Sennacherib are dead, Nebuchadnezzar is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Caesar is dead, Herod is dead, Annas, Caiaphas, and Judas are dead, Pontius Pilate is dead, however... Jesus is alive. And Peter adds to those lyrics in Acts chapter 2. The great King David is dead. However, Jesus is alive. And in him we place our hope. God raised this Jesus. And finally, God exalted this Jesus beginning in verse 33, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ." this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus you saw, this Jesus that you killed, this Jesus that God raised, this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now that combination of titles, Jesus, Lord, and Christ, occurs 84 times in the New Testament. Lord is a word reserved for God. And So, Jesus is not some created being. He is the creator. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He will judge the earth in righteousness. He is God. He is Lord. And He is also Jesus. His human name. He is truly man. He knew hunger and pain and sadness and the full range of the human existence. Yet, He was sinless. Jesus is a man. And then Christ, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, those who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is the perfect prophet, speaking the words of God perfectly. He is the perfect priest, the one mediator between God and man. You see, His death wasn't a martyr's death. It was a substitutionary death. It was for our atonement. Jesus is the perfect king. He rules and reigns with perfect justice. He is And this is Paul's favorite title for him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, He is exalted to the highest place, the right hand of God. And according to Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, you will never meet another human being who is so great that the mere mention of their name and their presence will force you to your knees, confessing their greatness. But you will do it for Jesus. He is that great. He is that worthy. He will not be denied the glory due to Him. God exalted Him. So Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this Jesus is Lord and Christ. Let the world know it. But my question for you, friend, is do you know it? Do you believe it? Do you know Jesus as Lord and Christ? Peter says, you saw this Jesus, you killed this Jesus, but God raised this Jesus and God has exalted this Jesus. That is Peter's message, that is the gospel. And when the crowd hears it, listen, they know they can't just walk away and have a nice lunch with their extended families and have an Easter egg hunt in the backyard they know that you have to do something with what He said. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is the question. What shall we do? What shall you do? And the answer Peter gives is to repent. The answer points to trusting in this one who was killed and who has been raised from the dead. This one who has borne the penalty for our sin. This one who has been raised for our justification. This one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. This one who will return in righteousness to make right all that has gone wrong. This one who will judge the living and the dead. This one who will bring us home to heaven this one who will rule and reign over a new heavens and a new earth that will be perfect forever this Jesus is the one that you need yes. Amen. this is him this Jesus of Nazareth do you know him have you trusted in him Oh, dear friend, turn to Him in faith. Don't let God's Word just go. Respond as so many in this crowd did. Verse 41, those who received His Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 Souls. Thousands of people heard about this Jesus and came to know this Jesus and were saved by this Jesus. And Grey Road? This is the message we can never assume. This is the message we can never forget. We cannot try to hold this message in one hand and the world's philosophies in the other. The gospel is a two-handed message. It requires both hands to hold on to it. We cannot be swayed from this Jesus, this message, this powerful this power to save, to transform To change the world, you want to change the world? You want to see the world changed? Proclaim this Jesus. Nothing else can change the human heart, and no one else can change the world but this Jesus. Dear Christians, this is the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for His life, for His death, for His resurrection, for His exaltation. I pray, God, for those who are hearing this and wrestling with it, who maybe have heard it many times before and have walked away. Oh God, by Your grace, help them to not walk away today. Give grace that those men and women who don't know Jesus will turn to him in faith. We thank you for this day. This text, these words. We thank you for this gospel and this Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And now, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with each one of us today and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.